Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Thanks, Cody. Good morning, church. All right, let, let's start diving into this. Um, I forgot how many verses it is exactly. I think we're going through about 50 verses today. Um, so let's get started. So no, no charming story, you know, to start. Let's get right into this. So last week we started looking at the end of John chapter 6, and we read about uh, the reactions, right? The reactions of everybody who saw and heard these things Jesus did, right? And what's their response? grumbling, right? And they're offended, they're annoyed, they don't like what they're hearing at all. And because of this, because they heard these hard things, they left, right? They stopped following Jesus. They turn around and they just head the other direction, you know, somewhere between probably 10 to 20,000 of them just, they, they go the other direction. And so the reason we looked at the end of chapter 6 first, if you remember, is, is to prepare our minds and prepare our hearts for the fact that chapter 6 has a bunch of very hard teachings, right? So we looked at the end first to be like, well, if Jesus' disciples are saying this is a hard teaching and Jesus is asking them if they're offended, then possibly what we're about to read could potentially be offensive. And so let's just prepare our hearts for that. And so you may remember Jesus feeds uh, somewhere between probably fifteen and 20,000 people, which is awesome, right? But then uh, the people just completely ruin it, and, and they try to force Jesus to be their king, right? And we talked about that. Jesus does not want to be dragged into our politics, right? Not theirs, not ours. And so his aim, you know, his reign, his purpose is so much greater than anything that we could use him for in our politics. And so he runs up an entirely different hill to get away from, from what people are trying to do. After that, another hard teaching we came across is the fact that Jesus directs his disciples into a storm, right? Which doesn't make sense. It's like these, these, these fishermen, they know you don't go that direction. Like nobody goes through this waters, not at night, not in a storm. And yet Jesus says, go this way. And so it challenges us to, to understand the fact that sometimes the way to go, the God-ordained way, is not into safety, but out of it. And so this week, we're going to finish chapter 6, and we're going to see some difficult things. This audience is, is going to have some, some things to, uh, to try to understand and hear, and they're going to struggle really bad. But in the end, I do hope that all of us here, even if we struggle this morning, we come through this more encouraged. Because I think that's where we land. That's where we're going to land at the end of chapter 6. You should be encouraged. Let's be encouraged in Christ this morning. Let me pray for us as we get started. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for everybody here. You know, Lord, it just blesses my heart to see everybody. It's my favorite time of the week, Lord. And, and I hope for you as well, Lord, that, you know, that when we meet... Lord, that you are honored, Lord, and you find joy in our worship of you and that our service would be a fragrance to you in heaven, Lord. And the heaven smells like Vanguard every Sunday morning, Lord. And so, Lord, may you be honored. And Lord, uh, would you just give us your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we 
go through some, some text, and I, I think a lot of us will find at least one text here to be very challenging, and may you just give us the truth by your Spirit, what is true, not what we want to be true, Lord, but what is true by your word, Lord. And so we ask you, Lord, to be honored and to help us, Lord. Amen. All right, so let's get started. We're going to read two big chunks of Scripture. Here's going to be the first one, continuing where we left off by looking at verses 22 through 26 in John chapter 6. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, uh, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so what we see here is this crowd, they follow Jesus, they get on boats, right? They go and they find Jesus and they ask him, you know, when did you get here? Or how did you get here? Depending on the translation. And who cares? Like they found Jesus, right? I mean, that's the whole point. What do they care to ask him, how did you get here? And so the reason for that is because they want him to say something, right? This whole time, we'll, we'll even see in our text today, this whole time they're comparing him to Moses, which is what Jesus wants. He wants this comparison to Moses to say, I'm so much better than Moses. Everything he did, I'm going to do so much more. And so when they're asking him right here, how did you get here? And they know there was no boats going over there. They want him to say something like, yeah, I parted the sea. That's how I got there, right? Or I walked on water. So they want Jesus to say some miraculous way that he got over there. And in verse 26, Jesus is having none of it. He doesn't want to do this small talk. He doesn't want to answer their question. He addresses the issue head on because Jesus is awesome like that. And he says, you guys just want more free food. Like, what's with the small talk? You guys, you guys want food. You guys want more bread. And who doesn't? Bread is great, right? Who doesn't want more bread? And Jesus is prepared to offer that. And we see that today. Jesus is going to offer them bread, but it's just not how they wanted. Um, so let's continue reading um, a big chunk of Scripture here. And then the rest of the way, we'll just go verse by verse. But here's a big chunk, verses 27 through 34. <clears throat> Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be, to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who was sent. So they said to him, then what signs do you do that we may believe, you know, that we may see and believe you? you know, what, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And so we have here in typical form is this crowd that, that is it's kind of comical and very tragic, right? And so um, they're saying, give us more signs. And so what, what are they asking for? More bread, 
right? Give us more bread. Yeah, we're listening, but also if you could keep giving us more bread as you're talking to us. After all, as they mentioned, Moses gave them bread. And so, um, as Cody read this morning, Moses, you know, in Exodus, Israel gets bread for 40 years. Jesus has only given them bread for one day. And so they're saying, like, if you're trying to be better than Moses, like, you got 41 plus years to be better, to be better than Moses. <clears throat> and so Jesus is, is offering them eternal life, right? The, the best, most sought after, important thing that we could ever discover and they're just thinking about bread. And they're like, we'll, we'll keep talking, but also keep giving us bread. <clears throat> to which Jesus says, first off, not true. So, A, Moses did not give you any bread. The guy did nothing as far. He didn't give you anything. It was God who gave you bread, right? God gave you that bread. And today, God is giving you bread again that leads to eternal life. To which the crowd responds, okay, give us this bread. And it's, it, it's a really weird a way to say it. They said, give us this bread always. Give us this bread always. What does that mean? It means they're still thinking about physical bread. And so they're like, yes, eternal bread sounds great. So just keep giving it to us. Just keep, keep giving us the bread. And so they're not getting it at all. At this point, Jesus is like, I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to spell it out for you guys. And so in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so what we see here is that Jesus is saying he is the bread of life. And so what I want to do is spend some time looking at this. What is the bread of life? What is the purpose of this? And so what is the divine purpose of the bread of life? The divine purpose of the bread of life is what? Anybody? Salvation. Salvation? Yes, and that, that is absolutely correct. And another way we'd say it here is that life, right? And so they're confused, and Jesus is trying to, like, don't be confused by this. Like, the purpose of the bread of life is so that, you know, you will have life. Jesus is life-giving, like salvation-giving. And we find that in two ways here in our text. The first is that he gives us life today. He gives us life in our lives today. And we see this first in verse 27 where it says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And in verse 35, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the bread of life is the answer to one of, probably not the hardest question in life, which is why? Why do we do anything? Like, what is the purpose? What is the meaning of life? Why do we wake up every day and just repeat this process of working hard to get food to eat and we're hungry again? And we work hard to pay our rent and next month rent, you know, it's, it's due again. And so <clears throat> why, why do we keep doing this? Um, even for those of us, you know, a lot of us here who, who are successful, right? You still there as successful as you are, there's still an emptiness at the end of the day that your success cannot fill. There's an emptiness and a void and a craving in your soul that only the bread of life can satisfy. The bread of life is spiritual nourishment for today. It is for today to be eaten today. It is communion and peace with your creator. 
And so working hard day in and day out for bread and for housing and for food and for income and degrees, all this stuff is, is good stuff, right? It's really good stuff, but it is not going to satisfy that hunger that you have. It's not, none of that is going to satisfy your spiritual hunger. Only the bread of life can do that. So I was trying to think about, you know, a good analogy um, about like the things that we work for that just never completely satisfy. And I was thinking about Chinese food. <laughs> Chinese food, right? So here's my food reference for the week, <laughs> right? And so we'll get it out of the way. Um, and so like, especially yesterday, I was craving Chinese food. And if you've had good Chinese food, it's so good. It is so good. You know, and you eat it and you get filled up and you get tired from it. There's just so much, so many calories, you get exhausted. And then what happens in about half an hour? You're hungry again. And so that, that's, that's the way life works. Everything we work so hard for. When you get that degree, what do you want? You want the next degree. And for those of us who do have the bread of life, right, that, that we're in Christ and we've tasted that, all these other things that we do in life now have more meaning, right? All, all the same things now have more meaning. The same exact things, because now when you do them, you are in communion. You are worshiping God through, you know, whether it's flipping burgers or teaching, whatever it might be, it's now a form of worship. Now all the resources you have and all the skills and gifts you had can be used to bless and love your neighbor, right? And be a light to them, to God, and help establish the kingdom on earth, which is, which is what we're called to do. You know, one thing I've picked, on, picked up on lately is I, is I think the church in general has kind of adopted this position of where we're just supposed to look busy until Jesus comes back, right? It's like, look busy, Jesus is coming back. And, and that's not our purpose. The purpose is to set up the kingdom on earth, right? Our prayer is like, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Like, we're not looking for an out. We're looking for the kingdom to come here. And that is our goal. So don't just keep looking up, waiting, right? Let's, we have Bakersfield. Bakersfield who needs Jesus. We need to go to Bakersfield and bring Jesus. And we need to bring the kingdom to Bakersfield and to the ends of the earth. And believe me, you know the world wants to starve and break your spirits. And so the answer to that is the bread of life, a bread that is for today. And Jesus not only gives us life today, but he gives us life eternally. At the end of physical toil, right, at the end of this mortal coil, the bread of life will raise us from the grave. And I don't know if it's intentional that there's a bread metaphor and this keep, keeps on using the word raising. It's like the bread of life is going to raise you. You're going to be raised. I don't know if that's intentional, but it's here all over the place. So the purpose of the bread, right, is, is that we'd have the bread in us, that we'd be in Jesus, right, and we'd be in his death and we'd be raised in the resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's interesting that eternal life here is mentioned five times, and I'm not even going to comment on them. I'm just going to read these five verses that take place just in our text today. Verse 39, I will raise him up on the last day. 
verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes shall have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Verse 44, I will raise him on the last day. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Verse 58, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So, Right? I mean, Jesus, he's trying to make it as simple and clear as possible. Like, he's repeating the same thing. Right? I mean, over and over and over. This is the bread that leads to eternity. This is the bread that leads to heaven. Right? He's not talking about physical, just physical bread. And so, at this point, you may say, like, yo, like, this doesn't sound hard. This doesn't sound difficult. This doesn't sound like a bad thing. But we know at the end of chapter 6, everybody's leaving. So why? This, this sounds so good. And so what I want to look at are at least three reasons why this is hard. Or what's so hard about this? Why are people rejecting this awesome-sounding bread here? And so the first thing I want to look at is the fact that this is divine bread from above. Divine bread from above. And this is a problem for people. In verse 35, again, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. As we looked at last week in the Greek, and I didn't make a slide for it this week, I'm sorry. Um, in the Greek, it's ego eimi or ego emi, however you want to pronounce it. But either way, the I am here is actually double, right? And translators, you know, early translators didn't want to do that. Like, that doesn't make sense. Why would he say it twice? And so, but it says it twice. It says, I am, I am the bread of life. And this is the first time the crowd hears it. And so last week, you may remember, like, the disciples heard this. Jesus said it to them. But now the crowd hears it, and they have a completely different take on it. So what we see here, this crowd, who is very familiar with Moses, know that what, what, God, what Jesus is saying here is that he is God. It's like, wait, did this guy just say, like, I am God? I am the bread of life. And so they're very upset about this. <clears throat> but this is what Jesus wants. He, he's not being vague, right? We've seen this in the fact that he repeats things over and over. In fact, in verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, God, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so Jesus is from heaven on a mission, right? To bring life, to be the life giver, to be the bread of life and offer enduring, eternal, spiritual sustenance to get us through this life and all the way through eternity. But there's a problem. Whenever Jesus says that he's God, what do people get? They get triggered, right? Oh no, like bright red flashing eyes, they get triggered and usually it's the spiritual authorities, right? It's, it's the teachers, it's the preachers who are just like, that, that's heresy. Like, they, they get super upset. But what we find here is the crowd, right? The people that he's feeding and healing get upset at this very same thing. And so what we see here is they're exposed. They don't want spiritual food, right? They want physical food. They want food food. You know, when Jesus hooked them up with, with, with fish and bread, yes, we like this guy. Let's make him king, right? And, but now that he rejects their politics and he, and he wants to be their spiritual salvation, they're, they're no longer interested. And they begin to like, what? Who does this guy think he is? They begin to grumble. And we see this in verses 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And he said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How does he now say that I have come down from heaven? And so they are just trapped in a physical mode of thinking, right? Physical mode. And so they reject the bread of life. They reject Jesus because they've seen him grow up, because they know who his father and mother are. The ones who had no problem taking free food and making him king are now grumbling and about to walk away. And so this next verse, right after that, um, verse 43, is where things, I begin, things begin to get hard. Verse 43, I think, is where things begin to get hard. And not for Jesus' audience. They have no problem with this one, believe it or not. It's modern Western church that has a problem with what Jesus begins to talk about here. So when Jesus is responding to their rejection, right, he, he rejects their election as king, and then King Jesus starts talking about election. So in verse 43 and 44, Jesus answers them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so another like hard part of this, another hard teaching, is the fact uh, that the reality of divine election divine election, and the difficulty for so many of us here, right, is the issue of free will. The objection to God's electing who's going to be saved, right? We've had this discussion, right? We've all had this discussion with people. God doesn't allow us to execute our free will as as we understand our free will. The counter-argument against divine election is that people have the power and capacity to save themselves, that as spiritually dead people, we can assess ourselves in our depravity and say, oh yeah, I need a savior. And somehow we could look across the whole spectrum of the world's religions and, and somehow discover that, oh yes, you know, this guy, Jesus, is the son of God. And yes, I'm going to believe in him and follow him. And yet the Bible, including our text today, I think is pretty clear that it says otherwise. You know, and so often I've heard this, this theological truth called Calvinism, right? We call this idea, this idea concept, Calvinism. And I'm not going to get into, into that aspect of it because what I want us to see here in John chapter 6 is that we should call this Jesusism. Because Jesus is going to absolutely just lay it out over and over. I, I believe clearly, and believe me, I, I say this, and I know that this is... This is troublesome, that this could be a hard thing for us to grasp. So I don't take this lightly, you know, but let's be faithful. Let's let Scripture and Jesus speak to us on, on this difficult matter. And so let's look at, at several verses here, starting in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So those who come to Jesus are those who are given to Jesus. Right? That's what it says. And the good news is it also says Jesus doesn't cast them out. Like once you come to Jesus, please never fear that you have done or said something or watched something on TV that is going to cause you to lose your salvation. Right? Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So again, salvation is from the will of the Father. Salvation is the will of the Father giving the saved person to the Son. And again, it says they're going to be saved. Once that happens, they're going to be saved. Don't worry about it. 
verse 40. For this is the will of my Father. And these are all different verses in this, in this text. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes him, in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Again, it's the will of the Father that someone has belief in the Son. There's no, I mean, this is the, the fourth time already. It's the Father who wills somebody to see the Son, we see in this verse. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. And so again, no one, right? No one, anybody can possibly ever come to Jesus unless God the Father shows him who Jesus is. Otherwise, this is just a guy claiming to be God. We would not follow this guy. We would not follow a guy that existed 2,000 years ago. Why would we possibly waste our time in doing that? We do it because God has shown us. Like Jesus, we know. Like We've seen Jesus. How could we not believe in Jesus? Because we have that. God's given that gift to us. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And so the prophet speaking of here is Isaiah, Isaiah 54, verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Now, not a lot of people talk about this verse. It's kind of like, what is he talking about here? You know, or this reference. And so what it's saying is, if you come, right, the end of the verse is if you, when you come to Jesus, it's because you've been taught by God. And so basically summarizing all the first five verses that we read, God teaches you to see Jesus as Jesus. If God doesn't tell you this is Jesus, follow this guy, we won't do it. No one, it says, no one will follow this guy. And towards the end of chapter 6, in, in verse 65, and it sounds like Jesus is getting um, maybe a little grumpy. He's getting a little upset that everybody is not listening to him. And he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Right? At this point, he's like, What else can I say? Like, no one. It must be granted. The Father grants the ability to see Christ and therefore come to Christ. And I don't think it's difficult for us to understand what the Bible says here. You know, I'd like to think that, that, it, that it's pretty clear. I think the problem, the difficulty, is in accepting it. Right? It's not that the Bible, understanding what it says, it's accepting what it says. Now, the great theologian, one of my heroes, R.C. Sproul, he used to have a plaque on his desk that, that had this written on it. You are responsible to teach what the Bible teaches, not what you would like for it to teach. <clears throat> and that is absolutely true, guys. And sometimes, you know, I mean, there's a reason to start both these last sermons. I've said, guys, I get it. Like, don't, I get it. Like, th this is a process. This is, this is big, big theological truth here to swallow. And we're going to do it, but I, I have to be faithful, not to try to win you guys over, you know, with my personality or jokes, you know, but in texts like this to be faithful and just say, yes, this is hard, guys. This is, this is hard, but this is what it says. And I think very clearly that it says that. And yet recently I heard, I believe it was last week, possibly the week before, 
a pastor in Southern California. I won't mention his name, but this guy has an audience of hundreds of thousands to possibly millions. Preaches in baseball stadiums. I've been to a baseball stadium to see him preach before. And he said, of, of, of this, of John chapter 6, he says he rejects this teaching. Rejects this teaching. He refuses to accept that this is true, that God would choose to save anybody. At least you want to cry. Like, it's, it's, it's really upsetting. It's like maybe don't preach on a passage instead of just saying it's not true, Right? And this doctrine of election has been one of the most fought-over doctrines I, through the history of the church, but especially in the last 200 years or so. And so I wanted to look at a couple definitions from theologians who I think really summarize election well. The first being Steve Lawson, <clears throat> who said this, In the broad sense, election refers to the fact that God chooses or elects to do everything that he does in whatever way he sees fit. When he acts, he does so only because he willfully and independently chooses to act according to his own nature, predetermined plan, and good pleasure. He decides to do whatever he desires without pressure or constraint from any outside influence. You know, and I, I would put us in an outside influence. Like, God is God. Like, who are we kidding? When we have this discussion, we just have to ask, like, what do we believe about God and how much God is in control, right? Um, Wayne Grudem, who I found out is one of my wife's favorite theologians, um, <clears throat> he says, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign pleasure. And church... I know this is a hard teaching, but I think you get to a point like me where this brings you absolute joy. I believe that's where this road takes you. Yet, is it a bumpy road? Is it a difficult road? Yes, but it takes you to absolute joy. If our option is between being spiritually dead and sinning and on our way to hell with all of our free will intact as we understand it, or God choosing us, right, and allowing us to smell the aroma of the bread of life and to partake of that and to have life today and forever. What's not awesome about that? How is that not awesome to us? What is the problem with that church? That we didn't decide for ourselves? Really? We reject Christ because we didn't make that decision? See, our original audience, Jesus' audience, did not have a problem with this. After all, Abraham was chosen, right? Moses is chosen. The prophets are chosen. God has a chosen people. The disciples are chosen. But when it comes to the Western modern church, like, we, what? Like, we don't understand how this has always worked throughout Scripture. Somehow now we have a struggle with this because we were chosen. And I don't understand it. Let me ask you this. If somebody, for no good reason, they don't know you, they don't know if you're a good person, a bad person, they don't know how you're going to act in the future, somebody just comes up to you and says, I'm going to give you a million dollars. Who's going to reject it? 
Who's really going to say, that's not fair? That's not fair. I didn't earn that money. Right? That's not fair that someone just chose me to give me a million dollars. So why, when it comes to Christ, the most valuable gift in this entire universe, do we have a problem with God just choosing to give us Christ? If we really care about somebody not having Christ besides us, there's something we can do about it. Right? But God does. He chooses. He calls. He teaches. He draws us. And then Jesus, over and over in this gospel and in this, even in this text this morning, says, God does all that, and then once I get you, I'm not letting you go. Right? Over and over. He says, I will raise you on the last day. I got you. I won't lose you. I will raise you. You're coming with me. We're going to eternity. Right? And so eight times just in this text, Jesus will say that. Just to verify what God starts, Jesus finishes. And so I believe that that should bring us joy and comfort and assurance. should excite us. Now this leads to just one more difficult, I think, hard teaching in this text, and that is the, the idea of divine dining. And we find this in verses 49 and 50 to start. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. Or someone, someone may eat of it and not die. And then in 53 and 54, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him on the last day. And so there's two things here that, that can be kind of off-putting for, for the original audience. And the first is the most obvious. We just have to name it cannibalism, right? Like, what? Did this guy seriously just say to eat his flesh and drink his blood? This is the guy that we're following, that we got on a boat to follow? This guy's crazy. And we, and we could just see, you know, how many can you imagine left? Probably thousands left right here. No, we came for, for bread, not for flesh and blood. They're out. They're out because they're just thinking physically. And of course, Jesus is talking about their spiritual hunger. He's just using what they're talking about, right? This whole metaphor is the fact that they're just like, bread, bread, bread. He's like, sure, well, consume me, right? If you guys are hungry, consume me. And then secondly is the idea of consuming. Well, how do you, how do you consume? What, what is Jesus asking you to do? And those who were listening a little better here know that Jesus has already explained this over and over. The way that you consume Jesus and you eat his flesh and drink his blood is to believe in him, to consume him, to bring him into you, right? Accept him, have a union with him. To feed on him as the bread of life is to come to him for spiritual sustenance and life. It doesn't mean to know about him, think about him, read books about him, or, or watch you know, YouTube videos about him. It's being in union and consuming him and having him be your, your sustaining, like you live by him, you trust in him. Everything about your life is about Jesus. The way you spend your time and your resources, everything is about consuming Jesus. And in verse 56, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And so the reality is when we consume him, we have union with him. We have union with him. 
And this is very problematic for, for the people following him because he's saying, like, if you guys want to follow me, it's, you have to be all in. You have to be obsessed, right? You, everything about you has to be about me. You have to come to me. You have to digest, ingest my words, my teaching. You have to completely give me your all, everything about you. You have to take me in. And most of them weren't willing to do that. And so which leaves us with the same question this morning that, that this crowd had, right? That is, what is your response? What is your response to all this? Do you run from a hard teaching or do you run to God and trust in him with a hard teaching? Now, you could be like those in verses 60 and 61 who said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Or those in verse 66, where it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so, yeah, this morning you could say, this is a hard teaching. Like, I'm out. I'm out. You know, I don't want the bread of life. I want the bread that is going to make me hungry in half an hour, an hour from now. Give me more of that. Give me a, a life of emptiness that doesn't have meaning, that I'll never feel fulfilled, that I have no hope for the future, for eternity. Give me that. I, I reject this hard teaching because I don't understand it because it's hard. I'm walking away. Or you can be like the disciples here in verse 67 who say, as Jesus asked them, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answers him, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so those who have tasted the bread of life know life is so much sweeter and better with the bread of life in it. Life is so much more meaningful and joyful with the words of life and with eternity on the horizon. Now, I love Jesus' response to this confession. And I could totally see Jesus even smiling and winking and pointing as he says this. <clears throat> but look what he says. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And so this is actually the ninth reference to election and predestination in, in just three paragraphs, nine times, right? That wasn't a movie quote. Um, <clears throat> and so what's awesome about this is that Jesus is saying, like he's, he's telling them, of course you're not leaving. I chose you. You were chosen. You can't leave. You were given to me. There's nothing I'm going to say or do. Like these guys are all going to get killed. Right? These guys are going to get martyred. All but one of them that we know of is going to get martyred. They are never going to turn away. Why? Because they were chosen. And if you were given to Jesus, you will, he will not lose you. Even through hard teachings, and maybe you're going to struggle through some hard teachings, but you will not be lost. Even if you walk away from the faith for a little while and you struggle and uh, deconstruct it or whatever, if, if you are saved, you, have, you can't go anywhere. Jesus will not lose you. You are not car keys. Jesus will not lose you. So I hope that encourages you, church. Maybe today you would say, well, I don't know that I consume the bread of life. I do think this is a hard teaching. I do struggle with some of the teachings of Christianity. But I know most of you come 
every week faithfully. And so because of that, I would say be encouraged by that. The fact that you have hard teachings and you keep coming back, that's a good sign that you've been drawn, right? You keep coming back. Even if James preaches an annoying sermon, right, or has a hard teaching, you guys keep coming back. Be encouraged by that. That, that. To me, that sounds like you've been drawn. And if you've been drawn to Jesus, you will not be lost. This will be carried out and you will be raised on that last day. And, and that is our hope. So let me, let me end with prayer for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.